This episode of AVXL was recorded on March 3rd, 2021. We've got 2021 TV updates, Samsung's Unbox and Discover event, ship dates for LG and Sony TVs, Rune gets a big update, Disney Plus fixes The Simpsons, finally, help picking speaker cable, and more. Don't forget to email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us, and thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear. No matter what your budget is, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. I have some Emotiva headphones I'm testing. I'm still in love with uh, Dan Clark Audio, formerly Mr. Speaker's Aeon headphones. And I have the joy of subwoofer location, which I'm using actual adult tools to work on. But we'll talk about that later. Okay. You, sir. I'm enjoying March. Welcome to March. <laughs> it was like negative six and there was snow like 10 days ago and now it's 52 degrees and the snow is gone. I'm confused. Somebody said that the, you know, if you move to St. Louis, you will have the full force of all four seasons. And I'm like kind of digging it. That's cool. Mostly I'm digging, not panicking about whether or not I'll be able to flush the toilet in June because there is or is not snow in the Sierras. <laughs> Good point. We had, unfortunately, we had a record weak winter in terms of rainfall here in Northern California. We're like at 37% of where we should be, which the weather is now warming up and it could turn into a pretty dry summer. We'll see. Hopefully more rain, more rain. Is there anything left to burn? Dude, run, run now. You've just doomed California and who knows how many other places. This technically is a, uh, we talk about home theater and home audio and personal audio and portable audio. Um, Probably the biggest thing we should get fired up about right now is uh, Samsung, in a trend we expect to continue throughout 2021, did an event outside of CES, which oddly enough, Robert noticed, seemed to be a lot of what we already heard at CES. The Unbox and Discover 2021 event. This was a virtual event. They basically host it online. You can view it through YouTube, and it's still posted there if you really want to go check it out. Uh, Like you said, it was really just a rehash of the announcements at CES. The only new information really that popped up was the fact that they have confirmed that their flagship micro LED TVs and their premium 4K and 8K 2021 Neo QLED models will start shipping in the coming weeks. In the totally new front, at least as far as the rather pricey micro LED display technology, they did announce a 76 inch model that will coexist with the already announced 8899 and 110 inch 4K micro LED models. I'm anticipating USD pricing in the $1,000 per diagonal inch range. The funny thing is with the 76 inch model, they haven't listed specs or pricing. We're not certain if it's going to be a true 4K panel or not. We'll see, but they are claiming that it should appear before year's end. One funny thing, though, at least funny to me, was that during the Unbox and Discover 2021 event, they showed off a product that I had not seen before called The Shelf. It's literally a custom shelf system for your TV and wall space. It gives basically a top and a bottom edge to the TV to help conceal it and integrate it into something that literally is just a shelf system that can, I don't know. It was hard for me to 
see the use case, although it looked attractive. I guess if you want well, a matched shelf system for your TV, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, it's it, this is an extension of their frame, right? Their idea that you can make a television look like art on the wall. And they actually have an amazing collection of curated art for that. But this allows you to put accessories rather than speakers or anything might improve your home theater or television experience. You can put tchotchkes next to it. I actually, I totally see the use case for this, especially for where they're trying to put these televisions in, because they immediately followed the shelf with the art, of which there's over 400, like 1,400 pieces at this point. I get where they're going. That's a good point. I now see more usefulness. Is it a flagship TV? No. Is it a TV that's going to look great in most locations? Yes. You know, do they have a picture of a happy family with a child bouncing on the bed and little artisanal wooden toys next to the screen? Yes. Yes, they do. And it looks damn good on that shelf. It really does. <laughs> I, okay. I admit. At first, I was making fun of it, but it would be more than just having a TV flush mounted to the wall. At least it gives yes. you something else to decorate around it a little bit easier and with something apparently that will match you know the look and styling of the tv itself especially if you're looking at something like the frame which is their art inspired television display system for this year the frame won't match the performance of the newest 4k and 8k neo qled tvs but you do have that it's not a bad tv a thinner bezel system that's customizable either through Samsung's own options or third-party designs as well if you're really looking to customize the look of something that truly looks more like a piece of framed art than it does even a TV itself. And yeah, they did announce some new partnerships as well for art to display on your frame or other Samsung displays that are compatible. It looked good. If I completely lose my mind, I could rotate our 100-inch retractable screen and rotate the entire home theater and then put the screen in between the joists because I'd have to cut into the joists, which would be bad um, and dangerous. But I could rotate the whole home theater 90 degrees and have that screen disappear. But right now it kind of blends into the top of the bookshelves, or at least I, I kid myself and pretend that it does. Um, but I get the idea. You know what I mean? I, I, I appreciate the art, the styling and the choices that you have between the the tripod style stand and ways of using your TV beyond just it being something for video display, pure and simple. Uh, Something I could do a little bit more in the downtime in terms of providing a look to a room or enjoying art on the screen. I think that's a wonderful use case. I mean, it was years on HD Nation and Techzilla before we stopped getting questions from people like, what's the largest HD TV I can fit in my 37-inch television cabinet? You know, your big piece of furniture. And I still see those things all over the place. I'm searching for like mid-century chairs that I can actually afford. And somebody's putting mid-century on their television cabinet that won't fit any television currently made over 32 inches. I think it's a smart move, especially for people, you know, that are in smaller spaces where everything has to kind of, you know, one room has to do a whole bunch of service. Uh, I get where they're going. And that's, you know, probably another reason why I look at their Neo QLED lineup, their flagship 4K and AK LCD televisions. For me, it's getting rid of the bezel or minimizing it like on these new models they have to something that's like literally half a millimeter. It's practically a floating screen when it's just sitting right. there like that. And I, I find that be a fantastic design. Yeah. Especially if you have a dedicated room. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. 
Hell yeah. <laughs> and in terms of other new TVs popping up relatively soon, the 2021 LG and Sony TVs should be in retail channels in the coming weeks, including Sony's A90J and LG's G1 OLED TVs that are looking to deliver literally twice the light output of previous designs, including a wonderful 1300 nit demo that Sony had showed off a few months back where they had a 10% test window, a standard sized window for when you're testing HD TVs or HDR TVs. And it achieved 1300 nits. Compare that to about say Whoa. 750 or so last year was the high end. Again, I've said this before, but that uh, aluminum heat spreader on the back of the A90J is apparently working quite well. LG's G1 should offer similar performance and I'm really looking forward to seeing how that compares. One thing that caught my eye today was just the pricing that Sony has shown on the 83-inch A90J. The list price apparently is about $10,000 USD, which that's a lot. But for an 83-inch OLED 4K resolution at that screen size, that would have been two or three times the cost last year. And to see it at a $10,000 starting price point, it bodes well for seeing larger screen sizes at even more affordable pricing. We like larger screens at more affordable prices. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. Paramount Plus uh, is replacing this week CBS All Access, one of the only streaming services I do not subscribe to. Uh, one of many I won't be subscribing to as I kind of chop down my ridiculous collection or will as soon as certain television services um, you know, finish a series I'm grinding my way through. Not that I'm bitter about uh, what American Gods is turning into. <laughs> which is a hot mess, but an interesting <laughs> one. Um, but uh, so CBS shows, right? You can still watch them for, quote, free, unquote, on CBS.com, um, which I believe involves watching ads. But CBS shows, original series, uh, CBS classics, uh, live CBS events, um, BET, Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, Paramount Pictures, and the Smithsonian Channel are all going to show up on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, I think the special emphasis for a lot of our audience is going to be, of course, the Star Trek, uh, pretty much all of which will be available there. Limited commercials will cost you 6 bucks a month or $60 annually. No commercials will be 10 bucks a month or $100 annually. And if you use the code Paramount Plus, you get half off an annual subscription. Ooh. I'm still not enticed into watching the latest iteration of Star Trek, but I'm, I'm closer. I'm closer. 50 bucks to saturate my children with all of the Star Trek is tempting. Kind of. You reminded me I have not seen the latest iteration of Star Trek, the latest one that they have on <laughs> CBS and now on Paramount Plus. <laughs> it's just there was nothing. If, if there's something I'm interested in, please tell me if there's something I should be watching on CBS. I just couldn't justify paying the money for yet another streaming service. A streaming service I do have, which is Disney Plus, and I will uh, say with a certain amount of personal embarrassment and deep fascination, my children have discovered The Simpsons. <laughs> it is a good thing which is well the fun part is explaining all of the cultural references um right uh yeah but uh you discovered something that i had noticed but forgot to mention <laughs> this is from a couple months back but disney plus now allows you to toggle the remastered aspect ratio with the Simpsons now. So we were complaining initially upon launch and uh, upon Disney Plus's acquisition of all the back catalog of Simpsons episodes that the originals that were originally 
uh, authored in four by three aspect ratios were being right. distorted and stretched, effectively cropping off the top and the bottom of the screen to make it fit. Now they've provided this toggle switch where you can have it the way it is or the way you wanted it or however you like. Uh, you can have it in that, that original flavor with the four by three, or if you do really just want it to fill the whole screen, you can just ignore that as well. Watch it. That's always cool. Three. And it reminds me that my, <laughs> my one year trial subscription to Disney plus is probably now expired. And I should, uh, I should consult what's available there that I may want to resubscribe to. And <laughs> otherwise I have my Netflix. I have my Amazon. I have quite a few other sources of content that I need to take better advantage yeah. of. I was trying to explain to one of my children that uh, I wasn't going to rewatch um, 3,000 years of The Simpsons just because there was a finite amount of time left that I had on the planet and there was too much television to watch. And, uh, uh, you know, I would certainly drop in on occasion. It's kind of funny, actually, just how amazing some of the writing is uh, in some of those episodes. Something I am leery of but looking forward to is the Snyder Cut of the Justice League. It's a complicated backstory. I'm not going to get into it, but the short version is terrible things happened in Snyder's life. He dropped out. Joss Whedon did a massive redo and finished uh, directing the Justice League. He, of course, is turned out to be quite the world-class scumbag based on most reports, uh, which is something is really frustrating. I'm not going to get into that either at the moment because I just have too much rage to vent on this podcast, and there are tender ears out there. But uh, Two things. One, I realized HBO Max is HBO Max because it's HBO and Cinemax because um, I'm slow. And I realized that because uh, see, I'm finally seeing season two of The Nick, which is this insane turn of the century, 19th, like late 19th, basically early 20th century hospital drama involving some amazing acting and terrifying sets and real live surgery. And I'll, I'm going to be watching season two, um, or will once I get past the surgery that starts in the first 30 seconds of season two, that's all I'll say about that. But, uh, we were talking about justice league. If you're in Canada, it's going to be on crave. It's going to be a rental in most of the rest of the world. If you have HBO max, you can watch it on March 18th. And I'm very, very curious because this is supposed to be a radically different movie than what uh, Whedon released. Uh, this is also a pretty serious investment um, because they had to do a whole lot of work to make the kind of original vision of the film come out. So I'm very, 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 very curious to see what this ends up being. So I'm still shaking my head over the whole naming of HBO Max. I did not make that connection either myself. <laughs> I'm like HBO Cinemax, mean, HBO Max. Maybe, oh yeah, maybe they were thinking of something else. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> oh man. Hey, in other you news, know. some streaming services are now starting to offer or upgrade their audio quality in terms of being able to provide lossless streaming services. And as more of these services seem to be He's offering about Spotify, this lossless quality. <laughs> It might be a good time to actually test and see if you can hear the difference between lossy and lossless audio samples. There are a couple of great resources for this. One is abx.digitalfeed.net. And if you search over on NPR, they actually did a similar audio test as well, where you can listen to select tracks and then test yourself. Can you find the differences? Can you hear the differences? And I found both of them to be very challenging in terms of yeah, You really have to sit in a quiet room. You have to be ready to try to hear it. 
I have not finished either of these tests yet, but just in the initial, <laughs> in the initial stages of it, I found myself finding it far more difficult than I thought it would to right. hear the difference between the two. I will say it's easier if you're working with tracks you're familiar with. Uh, I have said, as somebody who subscribes to Spotify, Tidal, Cobuzz, and uh, in order to track the bizarre development of the interface, uh, Amazon's HD music service, look, we don't really believe in, in high-definition audio files. Uh, you know, Redbook CD audio is pretty amazing. It contains an outrageous amount of music. If you want to go high-res, that's great. Lossless versus lossy is a different thing. We've been telling you for years, if you're on Spotify, pay for the premium version. There's an audible difference in the quality. Uh, I have lamented that Spotify does not have a lossless streaming format for a long time because a it's an amazing place to discover music they do a fantastic job of it and b i do often listen at you know when my family is asleep on some high-end audio gear and that makes it much more clear you know for if you're in the office and you're using you know some mediocre headphones and there's a lot of noise around you or you're in the car you're not going to hear a lot of the differences but as robert was pointing out if you're in a, a critical listening environment with where it's quiet and you've got a decent you know rig set up that's that's when you start to appreciate the differences because a lot of it is subtle or it involves detail um, you know, I've been saying for years, man, without a doubt, I found both of those tests and I'll post links to those in the show notes, but it's a good reminder <laughs> of, of how good a lossy compressed track can sound compared to something yes. that is lossless. That may be a cost you do not need or a way to save yeah. some money on your favorite streaming services. If you can't hear yeah. it, there's no reason to switch up, even though mentally in the back of my head, I'm always like, just give me the lossless quality. Maybe my <laughs> hearing in the, especially in the higher frequencies, isn't quite the way it used to be. <laughs> well, here's the thing <laughs> though, is, 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 oh man. So, okay. So let me say two things. One, something I said a long time ago was, you know, uh, the first time I heard Bob Marley was on an AM radio and it was, it was, it was an epiphanal experience. It was extraordinary because it's Bob Marley. Bob Marley sounds amazing on a crappy AM radio. Bob Marley sounds amazing on somebody's $15,000 stereo rig that's been perfected, right? Uh, it's Bob Marley. It's amazing music. It moves you even if the reproduction quality isn't that great because I'm a nerd, because I'm an audio nerd, I'm, I'm looking for the, the most phenomenal audio reproduction and it, it makes a difference. It's my hobby, right? I will say the premium version of Spotify, it's lossy, but they're flowing a pretty large amount of data on a pretty good encoding format. And yeah, you're right. It's, it's difficult to hear, you know, certain types of music, certain performances, it's easier to hear than others, but we're a long ways from the early days of MP3 where, you know, totally. uh, <laughs> some of the encoders were doing some really terrible things in really unfortunate ways, but, uh, uh, it's those are both good tests to do. It's a fascinating subject. Uh, as always, if you want to pick our brains about it or get into a discussion, we welcome you to email ask at avxl.com or tweet at Patrick Norton or tweet at Robert Heron. Uh, and if you want to, you can put uh, we're experimenting with the idea of a hashtag pound ask avxl uh, on the Twitters. Yeah. But, uh, you know, for me, I got into title um, because it was such a standard thing at audio events where everybody would have title well anybody who would actually let you play your own selections on their equipment at say rocky mountain audio fest or at ces or something they would have title 
on some sort of device for you to use. Right. I'm a much bigger fan of Cobuzz. It's for somebody who's into learning about bands and music. Uh, it's good, and it's much less trying to market somebody's latest track in your face. That's the thing that drives me nuts about Tidal is, is it's kind of this incredible advertorial machine for music I'm not that interested in, and it's kind of pissing me off. And then they started integrating music videos and other stuff. Cobuzz is pretty amazing, and if you are interested in buying high-res tracks, uh, you can get some pretty serious discounts with some of the subscription rates if you want to do that. But that's a conversation uh, for another day. We should probably give a, a shout out to everybody who sent us uh, questions about uh, home video surveillance gear and oh, yeah. uh, connecting older AV gear to your home theater. We'll talk about those next week. Uh, there was one I couldn't resist. Uh, Bill emailed about speaker wire. Uh, do you have any recommendations for speaker wire? Probably a 40 foot run gauge. OFC, not conduit rated. That's not needed. So many choices and the price varies so much. It's stupid. Help bill um <laughs> we we feel your pain there are good affordable options uh about six feet for me is what i'm effectually referring to uh as the last spool of speaker cable i should ever need to buy which is like a 300 foot spool of 12 gauge uh copper speaker cable you know actual solid copper speaker cable from monoprice um because i i realized to wire all 11,000 speakers in this Atmos system. I'm going to need a bunch of cable. And then I was like, well, I'm going to need more for other locations. So I just got this giant spool. Also, it was cheaper uh, buying it in bulk, just like buying toilet paper at Costco. From the testing I've seen that has been done on a variety of different gauges for speaker cable. Yeah. 12 seems to be the magic number, and there's really no yeah. reason to make it any larger unless you have very specific needs. And 12 yeah. is also good for going out very long distances. I've used yeah. 14 gauge, which is slightly thinner, at very long distances in excess of 60 feet in some runs <laughs> with no problems at all. And it, it's really yeah. just kind of matching those two up. I would say always, if you can, buy pure copper cable. Don't use... Right. Uh, basically copper clad aluminum or something like that. And if it's going to be in wall where this cable is going to be run, make sure it's an in wall rated cable. I prefer the monoprice gear with either two or four conductors inside of a jacketed sleeve. Right. So it's a little bit of extra protection. The stuff Robert's talking about CL2 wire is essentially designed to not generate a lot of smoke if it's run through a conduit system, if your building starts to burn, right? Um, you know, so for most people, if you're running speaker cable across the floor, you don't need CL2 cable. Uh, there's also no reason not to use CL2 cable if it's a good deal. Totally. The copper clad aluminum stuff, I don't know how frequently it shows up now, but for a while it was a real problem where you'd go into, say, a big box store and they had this great deal on copper cable. And then it turned out to be really, you know, the reason for using pure copper is because you want fairly low resistance, especially over longer runs. 12 gauge is actually overkill for most of the speakers I run over the distances I run them, right? But 12 gauge cable should solidly handle, safely handle, it should be, you know, the nuts, to use a poker phrase, for a four ohm speaker for up to about 60 feet. Perfect just under 60 feet, right? If you haven't spent a lot of time with wire 
AWG or American wired gauge, uh, the smaller the number is means you have a bigger wire. So a 16 gauge cable is like 1.3 millimeters of copper, a 12 gauge cable is two millimeters of copper, and the 2O or double zero or double aught gauge cables that connect my truck's battery to the starter, which handles something like 800 amps when I turn the key, are something like nine millimeters of copper which is really expensive. So the bigger the wire, the lower the resistance. And aluminum, even if it's clad with copper, uh, is vastly more resistive than copper. Like you said, though, I don't really see that offered as much anymore. Or it's very easy to find pure copper. So there's really no reason not to just use it. Part of the reason I buy from Monoprice is I'm pretty sure they, they have a solid grasp on their supply chain. Some of the lesser brands on Amazon, I might be a little nervous about or you might you if you if you have a multi-tester and you should because they're useful uh pound i am a geek you can test the resistance of cable when you buy it so that if you do buy some cable you don't end up creating issues right because mathematically speaking the resistance of the speaker wire should be less than five percent of the rated impedance of the system impedance being a measurement of resistance across and you know ac current but essentially uh you want low resistance and there's charts you can look at from a lot of companies just basically give you a a list of what gauge cable you need for a given length. We use 12 gauge because there's basically no resistance for the kind of voltages we're running. The bigger problem uh, that we haven't really talked about is a magical speaker cable thinking. You know, I have a couple friends who have are very serious uh, you know, they help design speakers and they've been testing audio at a very high level. And, you know, they have noticed some differences between speaker cable that they can impact the sound of the speaker. And a lot of that has to do with maybe the impedance of the cable itself. But they're going to tell you, you know, 90% of that, you know, sound is the the speaker and 90% of that sound in this is the source. And like 2% of that sound is the speaker cable. It's stupid subtle. Right. I can't tell you how many times I've just laughed out loud when somebody's been like, we have $300 headphone cables. They're going to totally open up the sound. That's targeting bias, conception, and people that need to buy expensive things. That is not a hole you need to jump into. You can you can skip no. that and just stick with yeah. a quality distributor of quality cable. Yeah. Either someone like you mentioned, Blue Jeans Cable is one of my favorites yeah. for custom, or just... That's a cable company, and they they terminate and make most of the cables right in-house. Yeah. That's all they do. (laughs) Or, in bulk, I always go to Monoprice, for me personally. I would like to buy some of the really amazingly terminated cables off of Blue Jeans Cable. Oh, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it, I, I can terminate stuff myself and it saves me a lot of money. But yeah, if it costs more than anything sold on Blue Jeans Cable, you're probably buying status. That's something you can actually hear. Uh, and if you tell me you can hear the difference, I'm going to ask you to do a AB blind test with matched levels and we'll talk about it after you successfully detect your cable versus my cable (laughs) i want to do that lossless audio test now i didn't get a chance to finish it i gotta start there the other thing is you know your your cable thickness is based on the distance you're running and you know the resistance of the speaker the ohm rating of the speaker right so technically a 16 gauge cable is fine for a 50 foot run if you have eight ohm speakers the problem is, is a lot of speakers throw up more resistance than you'd think the rating is often an average over a lot of frequencies but you can see eight ohm speakers dipping to six ohm or lower at different frequencies and again uh, you know, if you do end up with fancy four ohm speakers in the future, you'll be really happy 
happy that you ran 12 gauge cable now because uh, you won't be pulling a second set of cable in the future. Right. Which is something I actually had to do once. And it was difficult and spendy and really pissed me off. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> Ed in Washington, D.C. wrote in. Robert and Patrick, I have heard you mention Wirecutter and ratings as review sites. I assume that you trust them. What do you consider the best sites to review AV equipment? Thanks. Mm. Signed, Ed, in Washington, D.C. We know a bunch of the people that work at Wirecutter, uh, and the testing at ratings is top-notch on their televisions. Ratings is one of my favorites, just simply as a group of people who buy products in retail channels, test them mm -hmm. with a nicely detailed methodology that's publicly viewable, and then they provide all that data in charts and graphs that you can go through to sort those out the way you want. And it really makes it nice in terms of drilling down to yeah. specific performance categories for display systems. When it comes to projectors, a website like Projector Central is going to be at the top of my list. Mm -hmm. I also appreciate the work that HDTV Test does in terms of being able to get out and review some of the latest displays before they're even available in public. For my audio side of things, Audioholics is going to be one of my favorites, just mm -hmm. especially the YouTube channel is probably my favorite thing there. I often watch uh, Mr. Gene either show off or go over some of the, the basic components of having good sound or talking about some piece of the technology or the industry in a way that always seems enlightening to me. And those are just a handful of the sites I really do appreciate and look at. I admit, I always check out Wirecutter for, especially if it's a product out of my wheelhouse, they have really expanded in terms of their coverage categories to mm -hmm. just about everything I can think of at this point. <laughs> so that's that's always a good first place to check just to see if, if it's even hitting the radar of their reviewers and go from right. there. They spend a lot of time. They've got a lot of pretty serious expertise they're throwing at uh, figuring out what does things well. Audio Science Review is a, is a website I spend a lot of time on um, because they're doing very serious uh, measurements with uh, uh, audio precision gear and some pretty fancy speaker testing gear. I disagree a lot with some of the analysis of the, uh, of the testing because they're doing incredibly objective testing, but sometimes the guru there does some really interesting decisions or he spends, he's like, this speaker sounds great if you do this stuff to EQ it or for headphones. And I find EQing headphones to be incredibly frustrating. Because a lot of things, a lot of devices you might listen on, you can't do really, really detailed EQing on. Exactly. But the testing there is phenomenal, and you'll learn a lot in the discussions. Ratings uh, has been doing a lot of headphones lately. Uh, they also are gathering a bunch of great data. They bring things down to like a single score, which can be a little frustrating uh, because there's there can be a world class headphone, but it doesn't get a high score because it's not particularly good for exercising in. I think was the one that kind of stood out for me. You know, again, amazing information, and there's a lot to learn there. I'll also admit there's a lot of websites I read just because I find the reviews kind of hysterical, and I won't name them right now because it's just kind of rude. But, uh, you know, and, and in a couple of them, in some areas, they do really, 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 you know, useful work. And in other areas, there's some sort of magical thinking $300 USB cables or $700 audiophile switches that are built on a $35 switch. One thing I really appreciate the ratings folks for is the methodologies. Yeah. They they are very detailed, yeah. very spelled out, and they're updated and very yearly. Yeah, and if something needs to change in terms of how they're testing in order to get a more... A more they evolve. Yeah, 
Exactly. They evolved it quite well. And I do appreciate that. And they just expanded into computer monitors recently. And that is something Ooh. I am as, as itching to buy nobody's. as anything. <laughs> if yeah. I can't buy a graphics card for the next six months due to lack of stock, I might as well upgrade my monitor and get that done. <laughs> And computer monitors, there's some really good monitors out right now. But yeah, actually, it reminds me, I think they have a Patreon for ratings, and I did jump on that and look for one for Audioholics. I do want a Quantum Dot PC monitor. That's going to be my next purchase. I want an OLED TV monitor. Or mini LED backlit. <laughs> oh, boy. We're not going to have a review of it this week, but I want to give a shout-out. It was a big update to Rune, R-O-O-N, um, the uh, software that I started using because title was so annoying. Um, <laughs> Rune has expanded a lot, right? And uh, ostensibly, it's a place where I can take title and Cobas and my, you know, thousands of, of uh, lossless flack tracks and give them a single interface with all of the metadata. Uh, 1.8 has a new interface, uh, but the big news is really under the hood. Quote, using its deep metadata and an understanding over 100,000 expert listeners from Valence, Rune now surfaces and suggests music with uncanny sensitivity and insight. End quote. Uh, Valence was the metadata AI engine uh, that Rune built into version 1.7. Like I said uh, before, we're going to have a review on that soon. Uh, and I will try to preempt any emails. Uh, every time I say that this costs money, you know, there's either a lifetime or an annual fee for this. Uh, I get a lot of email or a lot of tweets that it's ridiculous to pay for this. Uh, and I'm going to talk about why I think software developers should make money uh, for their work. Not that there's anything against open source tools. I'm also uh, re-ripping a few hundred CDs because that's always fun. But we'll discuss CD ripping if you want me to email ask at abxl.com. <laughs> I need a way to go through my ripped collection and find the handful of discs that weren't ripped properly. Every now and then I'll hear a track playing through my system with about, say, five, six hundred discs, CD audio discs encoded to the FLAC format, which should be fundamentally lossless and perfect. Right. There are a few that were not encoded properly. And every now and then one of those pops up and it's either up to me to write it down real quick and then go check that disc and go find that disc again and re-rip it. Accurate rip. A more automated way to do that. And yeah, I thought I had all the regular tools running to check that kind of thing. But, you know... When you're ripping a few hundred discs, sometimes you get a little sloppy and maybe in the middle, <laughs> in the late night, ejecting and see, inserting. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, they've got me thinking, right? Because uh, accurate rip will basically check it against the database of like 4 million tracks where it can verify the extracted files are free from errors. I don't know if you can run that against a collection that you've already ripped. Right. That'll be something to figure out. Um, and now you've got Spoon's me. Into Spoon's audio guide, I went. Because that's accurate rip as part of DB Power Does Amp. Does that yeah. <laughs> DB Power Amp has accurate rip built in. Yes. So. Still I'll using see that. We'll see if we can find out. Because I don't know if you can run the accurate ripped against a music collection. Unless it's built into maybe... Oh, perfect tunes. So Spoon, who does DB Power Amp, who also does Perfect Tunes. Perfect Tunes is an app that will do things like add missing album covers and allow you to tweak metadata. And I believe, yeah, it'll check your tracks against Accurate Rip. 
Cool. And it'll even remove duplicate tracks. And there's a free trial, it looks like. I will check that out. There you go. <laughs> and hopefully this will be the last time I rip this particular collection of discs. I hear you. Nothing I'm playing around with is uh, REW Room EQ Wizard and a measurement mic because I'm experimenting with locations on multiple subwoofers in the giant basement, which is hard to fill with bass. But if you throw more subwoofers at the problem, uh, in theory, you can eliminate or uh, minimize some of the standing waves and have more pressure. I think Brent Bettleworth said uh, in an anoic chamber, if you put two subwoofers in, you get a 6 dB increase. In a real-world environment, it's more like 3 dB but it also can do a lot of things with canceling out standing waves. And then things get really complicated. And then there's open baffle subwoofer designs that are the size of a refrigerator. And again, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> it's cool though. I mean, that's a decent piece of software and you pair that with a calibrated microphone and there's a lot uh, you, you can do with it between you know, room measurements to device measurements to whatever. And just being able to visualize that in real time. And yes. do some comparisons between your experimental setups that you're experimenting with, so to speak. I trust but verify, yes. I think, is part of it. And also, it's just one of those things where to, for the ability to actually capture that information and see what it looks like. Um, uh, not that I don't enjoy crawling or, you know, putting the subwoofer on the couch and crawling around the room. But sometimes you want to try sciency tools to try to solve problems. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Good stuff. Oh, man. Uh, Netflix, by the way, ended 2020 with 203 million subscribers. They added 37 million paid memberships, $25 billion in annual revenue. That's up 24% from last year. And, quote, grew operating profit 76% to $4.6 billion. It was a very 2020 hard on everybody, but boy, it did good for Netflix. All those people staying at home and not going to movie theaters. <laughs> Vote, <laughs> we're becoming an increasingly global service with 83% of our paid net ads in 2020 coming outside of the North American region. Co-CEOs Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos wrote in a letter to shareholders. By the way, something to note. Uh, in 2020, Netflix also had $200 million in uh, DVD and Blu-ray rental revenue. So Mr. Hastings probably made the right decision to go into streaming, which is something I was really annoyed with them doing a thousand years ago. I will miss <laughs> the red and white envelopes. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen any of those in a long time. The uh, quote, by the way, came from Media Play News, which is an interesting news source for people that are curious about what's going on in the streaming video world. Gosh, remember the envelopes? Remember returning the envelopes? Remember forgetting to return the envelopes and having movies for like eight months? <laughs> Tossing them in the postal bin. Oh, here you go. I see people using that Redbox service. I out love in Redbox. Front of 7-Elevens and Safeways and everywhere else. And yes, that seems just as popular as anything as well. You know Although, what the best thing about Redbox is? Uh, outside of having to, you know wave a fan in front of it when somebody's been sitting there after they've, you know, gotten tired of Netflix and chill and they've decided to take their chill and breathe it all over the Netflix box or the bread box box, which is why so many of them were shut down during the pandemic. You can buy uh, used uh, Blu-rays off them for like three bucks. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Until the pandemic shut most of the red boxes down, I bought a lot of Blu-rays in a lot of strange places 
where, you know, people don't have quality internet service. It's uh, something to keep an eye open for. I'm thinking about my summertime coming up maybe, and do I finally get a decent outdoor projector or not? And I'm thinking it might be nice to have one, especially for the, uh, the upcoming baseball season. Ooh, that'd be nice. Currently in spring training. Socially distanced backyard baseball. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like it. What would be really great is if you can actually stream an A's game on MLB.com. You could have the lag between the sound of the stadium and the sound in your backyard. <laughs> Pretty sure I canceled my MLB TV subscription. And I'm just sticking with the the local broadcasters for my two sports teams that I care about here in the Bay Area. They actually carry it. 90% of the time, it's going to be blacked out on MLB TV. Right. So I'm like, why am I paying for this if the games I want to watch the most are being blacked out every week? Or every day, for that matter. I'm done with that until they change their blackout rules. I will continue to experience sports ball through you vicariously. Tell I'm just going to say that. Although I got to take the boys to the Cardinal Stadium because it looks really pretty. Oh. Although they sold out all of their socially distanced tickets. Someday. My Someday. A's might be getting a new stadium right on the waterfront in Jack London Square. In no! Oakland. They should stay exactly where they are. I agree. <laughs> I really do. I'd like to see them just remodel that whole Coliseum. Yes. But that whole easy to access location. stadium. Right. Uh, we'll Jack see. London Square was going to be a nightmare to get people to. Yeah. I'm going by boat or canoe. Canoe might be the way to do somebody it. Somebody who spent time on the estuary uh, and has actually had a canoe on the Alameda estuary, get something with a motor, dude. Yeah. And also uh, figure out where you're going to park that thing and chain it up. <laughs> yeah. I doubt I would get out of it. <laughs> Jack, Jack London Square has about four places to legally park boats, uh, which is a really fun way to go to the farmer's market. With that, I think we're far enough off the beaten audiovisual track that we should probably thank everyone for their patience in listening. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. This is AVXL. Go to AVXL.com for all of our older episodes or learn how to subscribe. If you really enjoy the show and you want to support us, we'd appreciate you uh, committing a, little, a few dollars monthly over at Patreon.com slash AVXL. We did not charge in February because we did not have four episodes. I uh, did a cross-country move that turned into a cross-country move and a, uh, a project that kind of exploded on me. But uh, we were going to be back up to four episodes this week, and we welcome your questions. Do us a favor, email ask at avxl.com or tweet at Patrick Norton or at Robert Heron. And if that person who keeps calling me from Sausalito to try to sell me car insurance keeps doing it, I'm going to figure out a way to track them down, even though I can't because... It's all cloud-generated telebot calls. Not that I'm bitter and angry about that, but I am. <laughs> I With truly that. appreciate having Google Assistant answer those calls for me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and with that. That's okay. I, you know, I also got on somebody's list where they were filtering through public data and trying to buy the house that we bought off of us. Um, and I finally answered one of the phone calls and politely asked them to take my name off uh, and to stop texting me. Again, I do appreciate my Google Assistant on my Pixel phone through Google oh. 5 service that literally will answer those calls, ask them what they want, 
and then the machine can tell them to go away and piss off. I can't store enough audio on a <laughs> Pixel phone. <laughs> I hear they you. They need more storage. Or I need to stop spending time in places with no service. The lack of SD card slots. Oh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Gordon. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.